Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Now, one of the key Air Force organizations charged with working solutions to its future challenges is appropriately named Air Force Futures. That's why I'm particularly pleased to have with us today Mr. Tom Lawhead, the Acting Director of Air Force Futures. He's responsible for developing Air Force strategy and concepts, conducting strategic assessments of the operating environment, and developing an integrated future force design. Tom's call sign is Vulture, and he has a rich Air Force career. He served as a fighter pilot, including multiple command assignments, and wrapped up his active duty career as the chief of the Legislative Liaison Weapons <clears throat> Division. As a civilian, he's worked in multiple leadership positions throughout the Air Staff. So, Vulture, thanks very much for taking the time to come out and join us today. And what I'd like to do to kick this off is offer you the opportunity to say a couple of uh, introductory remarks, and then we'll get into Q&A. Great, Dave. Thanks uh, so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always nice for uh, two old guys to talk yeah. about the future of the Air Force. So I'm very excited uh, for today's conversation, particularly uh, with those who are watching. Uh, I, I think it's maybe appropriate, since you mentioned force design, that we talk a few minutes about where we're at and what we're doing in terms of Air Force and hence joint force force design. And I think it all starts with where we're at today. And we'll get, I think, into that a little bit uh, further. But really, the definition of, of what our forces are capable against today's threat and what risk are we currently carrying, and then how does that translate into the future and what do we need to do? So a couple of things specifically that we're currently working on, and we'll go kind of from here to the far future. We're looking at about 30 years out in a 2050 force design, and, and by definition, that becomes pretty big funnel uh, that we look at as you, as you look almost 30 years into the future and what that operating environment might be. Uh, so we are then tracked back 10 years from that into the 2040 and our global futures report that we published last year uh, starts to lay out uh, potential operating environments of the future, whether that's a steady state uh, growth, whether it's a constant growth, whether it's some asymptotic uh, technical advantage uh, that one or the other side gains, or whether there's some catastrophic, either from a resourcing and financing standpoint, economy standpoint, or uh, a threat standpoint. Those four different operating environments are what we looked at and what's the joint force needed in, in those uh, instances. And then more to the, the point from a resourcing and future years defense program standpoint is our 2033 uh, force design and objective force. And that kind of lays out uh, the force we need against our pacing challenges, which, as we all know today, are China and Russia, uh, and where we need to go as an Air Force to uh, mitigate and minimize risk in the future. Then, really, the so once you have that objective force, uh, then the hard work starts. And that's, again, how do I get from today and the risk that I carry today to that more narrow funnel out here in 2033? What do I need to do as I walk towards that? And what that actually enables us to do is we build those capability development plans. What that enables us to do is, is snap a chalk line at any point along that timeline so that we can do campaign analysis and risk analysis to figure out whether or not that force that we're building towards is actually going to get us into the middle of that funnel in the future where we need to be. The other thing it enables us to do as we iterate with 
Congress on budgets and as we iterate with OSD on, uh, on POMs and budgets, it allows us to then go back and refix the force design based on the current reality. So as we step that pathway. So I'm very excited uh, to talk today about where we're headed and uh, how we're gonna get there. Well, thank thanks very much for that rundown. Uh, why don't we jump into a little bit more detail Perfect. on some of the things that you outlined. Now, one of the concerns that people have out there is, look, it's really impressive to watch your organization develop concepts for the future, yet at the same time, um, there are threats out there that we can't ignore today. So could you talk a little bit about how futures balances these two time horizons, um, or are you specifically just concerned with the future and you let the rest of the air staff worry about today? So uh, the good news is uh, no one organization is doing you know, all of the work. So uh, I think it, we have a couple things going for us overall. First off, uh, between the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, uh, the joint war fighting concept from which we derive the Air Force future operating concept, the joint force, OSD, and now that we've talked through uh, on with Congress on a lot of these concepts, we are very well aligned on where we think we need to go. Uh, that helps a lot. Uh, within the air staff in particular and with our major commands, uh, we spend a lot of our time collaborating and communicating with those staffs to ensure that the requirements piece that Air Force Futures is responsible for is aligned with the acquisition strategies to get after those capabilities, is also aligned with the A8 and FM resourcing side of that defense acquisition enterprise of how do we get again from here today to tomorrow's force. Uh, I think there will always be conversations about balance, both uh, within a snapshot in time so what's more important, the weapon or the platform? What's more important, the network or the platform or the weapon? You're gonna have those vertical conversations. There's also a, that temporal conversation on mitigating risk near-term versus mitigating risk far-term. So first off, understanding the risk in each of those time epochs is, is critical uh, so that we can start to make have those conversations and then make those decisions based on analytic rigor. And a lot of our wargaming and uh, exercises point us towards that both near-term risk and longer-term risk, and how do we balance the two? Okay, pulling on that thread um, a little bit further, how do you engage to ensure that there are a balanced set of voices representatives? For example, a MAGCOM might want one thing, but that's gonna be different from what you hear from Air Force Research Lab. Both are important, but they represent different time horizons and uh, equities. Yeah, so I think, uh, again, it goes down to communication and collaboration. So for me, for instance, you know, the prioritization of the capabilities that, that we need and how do we get there uh, is critical. We work with each of the MAGCOMs and try to integrate what that is. And, and what it ultimately comes down to is if you set up uh, a list of all the capabilities required in the future force, then we tend to bundle them into, so it's all well and good to have great platforms, fighters and bombers and the weapons forum, but if I can't communicate between them and the command and control, I might as well not have them. So then you can start to prioritize in bundles and groups of what you need. Let's not forget the foundational aspects of 
the Air Force and the Joint Force that have to be there. We have to access, we have to recruit and retain and train and develop our airmen, and that's critical to that fight as well. We have to have dorms for them to, to live in, et cetera, et cetera. So all of those pieces, parts get hopped into the future force design. Uh, so I think we tend to focus when we talk future force design and future capabilities on the capability aspect of what we need. There's certainly a capacity aspect to that. And there are about four other parts of future force design, which we are chugging through. And that's the organization that, that most efficiently and effectively uh, gets us to that combat capability. There's posture, there's presentation, and then probably most important, there's airman development as part of the uh, future force design. No, very good. And uh, segue to what you just mentioned, and that's uh, while we all understand that capabilities are important, so is capacity. Um, we all know that the Air Force is the oldest and smallest in its history. So how do we go about regaining the capacity that we need to execute our national defense strategy? Yes, yeah, so step one in the regaining of capacity is defining what capacity is needed and, and actually uh, this week, we're doing a sprint effort uh, on uh, stand in and stand out. And what that, where is there a knee in the curve of the ratio of our ability to stand outside the highly contested environment, shoot into it? How much do we need penetrating capabilities to go into that highly contested environment? And what weapons does that penetrating capability need? What sensor capabilities are needed? inside the highly contested environment versus outside. And as we get to that balance, then that points to, okay, here's the capabilities we need and the capacity that we need. That starts to draw a line in the sand of, okay, where are we again? Where do we need to be in terms of both capability and capacity? And then what's our path towards growth? That gives us that, again, analytic rigor that allows us to go downstairs to uh, OSD and the joint staff, fight for what we need to get both the capability and capacity uh, in terms of platforms, weapons, and airmen, uh, as well as in across the river to the Hill to argue with Congress and plead our case with Congress. Again, with solid analytic data that presents the risk near term into the future. And now you anticipated my next question, and you may have already answered it, uh, but I'm going to give you a crack at if you want to change the way that you address that. But obviously, all of this, you know, modernizing the Air Force, rebuilding uh, capacity and sustaining readiness uh, demands adequate resources. So, you know, how's the Air Force doing in advocating for these challenges and these resources? I, well, first off, I think uh, we're we're doing great. And the reason we're doing great uh, relative to uh, uh, other services most recently uh, is that we've got that analytic rigor behind what it is that we need and why we need it, uh, both in terms of capability and capacity. Uh, do we have enough? Uh, we never have enough, but we are looking at uh, how can we be more efficient and effective, both in terms of organization and then those, those capability aspects and what is absolutely essential to tomorrow's warfighting capability. So from that perspective, uh, we're doing okay. Uh, I, I think uh, as I gaze into my crystal ball of future resources, that fight will by necessity continue. 
And I'll go back to my earlier statement of we are aligned as a joint force in what we need. And every conversation we have, uh, both with the joint staff, with the combatant commanders, uh, with the major commands, with OSD, points towards uh, the joint force need for what the Air Force brings to that fight. So I think we're on a very solid basis to continue that argument for uh, increasing uh, resources going forward. Uh, very good. Switching gears a little bit, uh, during the Cold War, um, you and I both remember that we planned and uh, trained for air bases to be operable even while we were coming under direct attack. How does the Air Force's uh, future force design prioritize air base defense? Uh, so I would say, and Secretary Kendall, probably the one thing that keeps him up at night is, is base defense of, of our forces uh, in the deployed environment. And I 100% agree with you that, yeah, we learned how to fight through those base attacks, but the scale uh, and capability of the attacks that the force will see in the near to long to midterm future are, are unimaginably worse than uh, what we experienced during the Cold War. So the way we're attacking that uh, that capability need is really a, a triumvirate of base defense itself, logistics under attack, and agile combat employment. And those three, which all need to be orchestrated and commanded and controlled together, uh, are what going to enable us uh, to actually generate the combat sorties that we need. Uh, we have, uh, in recent budgets, put a good amount of money into uh, pre-positioning and setting the theaters, and that's not just in the Indo-Pacific theater, but also in the European theater. So that will enable that agile combat employment and logistics under attack and be able to uh, generate uh, the sorties. We're having a lot of conversation with the Army about uh, roles and responsibilities and who is uh, going to protect our bases, and those have been actually fairly fruitful. Uh, the Army was given a pretty good slug of money in the last uh, budget to get after uh, sector and regional air defense. Uh, we are currently working with the Army in an integrated air and missile defense mix study. Uh, in addition, in a parallel effort, uh, we're working also with the Army, NORAD, NORTHCOM on a uh, uh, air and missile defense of the homeland uh, analysis of alternatives that that parallels what we're doing in the IAMD mix study. There's also the defense of Guam study. So we are, are looking at this holistically and what is the best way to protect not just the Air Force, but the joint deployed force in that environment that we're going to face, which is unlike anything uh, we have ever seen. Yeah, I think too, just expanding a bit on this topic, um, <laughs> Whether they like it or not, the Navy plays a role here too, particularly in the Pacific when we look at some unique capabilities with their uh, Aegis-equipped ships, mm -hmm. which they originally designed for protection of the battle group, but may in fact be used for protection of some of the island land bases. Have you had any discussions with the Navy in that regard? Yeah, absolutely. So all the services are involved in, in this in, in base defense and what, what that future looks like. So it started with that defense of Guam study. It's going on with the IAMD mix. And what are the capabilities? And just like in the, in the kinetic and non-kinetic air breathing realm, it is all about how do we sense, 
how do we make sense, and then how do we act uh, to, to shoot down those threats against uh, the joint force. So we're uh, having a lot of ongoing conversations with all of the joint force, frankly, uh, to figure that out. I give and take on of all those cruisers and uh, uh, to uh, to the JFAC. Uh, so we are not at that level of uh, detail yet. However, uh, I would say that that when you start to have this conversation about sensing from all domains, sense making in particular domains, and affecting the battle space, both kinetically and non kinetically, in multiple domains. Uh, the discussion quickly dives into a command and control right. discussion. And who is, you know, what does it mean to be uh, the air component commander in a world where you have space sensors giving target coordinates to a surface shooter, which then shoots, which gets a target in-flight target update from an Air Force air breather. Right. Uh, so that. C2 and that battle management are a lot of what we're working at with the coalition joint, all domain command and control work, both at the joint staff and amongst all the services. The Air Force's contribution to CJAD C2 would be the advanced battle management system. Right. That's really how we start to get after uh, that efficient and lethally effective yeah. battle management. Yeah, systems-wise, I think command relationships are important in this too. And as we both know, the uh, combined joint uh, force air component commander is also the integrated air and missile defense commander too. So anyway, I, Absolutely. I, I don't want to get into too much detail here, but it is challenging and opens up different perspectives given this much more multi-domain environment than uh, perhaps the way we operated 30 years ago. So. Um, you did mention ACE, Agile Combat em Employment's obviously an important element of the Air Force's strategy. Uh, now for ACE to work, um, logistics, force protection, command and control, you already mentioned that are crucial areas that are gonna require additional resources. So where does the Air Force stand in, in its attempts to make uh, Agile Combat Employment a reality? So first off, I think there's a mindset change. Right, so the, the way we will fight in the future is significantly different from the way we fought in the past from fixed base. We are not gonna have the luxury of a six month desert shield where we're able to build up forces and materiel in significant main operating bases. And then when at a time and place of our choosing, initiate conflict and, and win. Uh, where we see the future, we will be fighting to get out of CONUS, fighting to get into theater, fighting to uh, get sorties airborne, fighting to get into the area of operations, uh, and then actually preventing it, whether it's a cross-strait invasion or uh, a Russian incursion, preventing and denying enemy objectives. And then maybe the most important, hardest, and biggest fight of all is sustaining that fight over time. As you look at agile combat employment, that the thought that, that uh, we have in working with uh, the combatant commands is a hub and spoke model where as many spokes as I can operate out of complicates the enemy's targeting uh, capability. And with the assumption that with the mission command, we are able to continue to fight the fight out of those spokes, uh, it is logistically hard to sustain. So we'll need to work our way through that again 
pace is inextricable from logistics under attack and inextricable from base defense because it all has to happen. So uh, where we see that uh, coming to some fruition is uh, the ability to get into shorter and shorter runways. So as we get into runway flexible, runway independent uh, capabilities, that starts to expand the number of spokes that we can do. Uh, temper that with the ability, then you still have to command and control everything that's going on. You still have to sustain and support everything that's going on. So that'll be a give and take. Uh, but maybe the from a personnel standpoint, uh, from an airman standpoint, probably the toughest thing to do is how you're actually going to execute and exercise and practice ACE. And so we're actually uh, taking a shot at that. Air Mobility Command did Mobility Guardian this past summer, just wrapped up, very successful exercise and how they would bring mobility forces into theater, how they would support the ACE concept. That was actually in conjunction with, I think, 12 different flying exercises that were ongoing at the same time. So they were able to coordinate their mobility movement with all of those flying exercises to support uh, the forces in that hub and spoke uh, uh, paradigm. Yeah, very good. Now, one of the other areas that we're hearing a lot about uh, an actual actually have done some some work on and putting together uh, workshops is collaborative combat aircraft. Um, obviously a significant imperative uh, for the Secretary and the Air Force. So where does this vision stand today and how has the concept evolved recently? So the concept has evolved uh, in that we're trying to narrow our focus a little bit. So there is the autonomous collaborative platform umbrella of things that could be done in an uncrewed uh, state. We think one of the critical needs that we have is to bring affordable mass to the, the battle space. And we'll do that with, at first with combat collaborative uh, or collaborative combat aircraft. Uh, that will be initially in the air to air role, and then we will seek to expand to other mission sets uh, with the ACP family. Uh, we've, uh, hopefully, we actually get a 24 budget uh, sometime soon because we've got a lot of money that we've put into the CCA development uh, in this upcoming uh, budget. And we think uh, it's critical force multiplier and enabler of the joint force. Uh, moving on to space, Tom, how does the futures work to integrate space power capabilities and concepts? Is the... Space System Command's Warfighter Integration Office, one of your partners in developing future requirements? Yeah, them and also uh, uh, the Space Warfare Analysis Center does a lot of their force design work as well. So we work closely with the Space Force generally and, you know, from an air staff standpoint, directly with the S589 and their, uh, their uh, requirements uh, to actually figure out what the joint force needs out of space. We're in a transition point from where space was force provider or a capability provider, think GPS and, and precision navigation and timing, uh, think MILSATCOM, uh, to where we are collaboratively seeking to use capabilities from space, particularly in the moving target indicator realm, uh, to be able to use space and in, in a in a Title X way, if you will, in addition to what the NRO is doing for us, uh, to be able to 
hold targets uh, in custody and hold them at risk at a time and again at a time and place of our choosing. No, very good. Now, the Department of the Air Force finds itself pursuing multiple uh, solution paths. You've mentioned some of them. Uh, one, for example, that you alluded to is the highly disaggregated space-based approach for the GMTI mission versus um, what we expect to see with the E-7. Could you elaborate a little bit on how you balance these two different approaches? Yeah, so much like uh, all our other capabilities, there is both a kind of a vertical alignment and a temporal alignment uh, over across uh, time. Uh, what we see is, uh, first and foremost, that the E3 needs to be replaced, and it needs to be replaced as quickly as possible. So we see the E7 uh, currently as a viable uh, replacement uh, for the E3, in fact, a significant upgrade to the E3's capabilities that we have to have. As you go out over time, in the perfect world, I would be able to go to a moving target indicator from space capability immediately, but that capability is still in development and won't be ready to uh, uh, field for uh, uh, some time. So we see the E7 both as a gap filler, but more importantly, as a resilient piece that will remain part of the joint force uh, for a long time to come. So even as we go to space for a lot of these capabilities, the ability to target our assets in space uh, show us that we need to have other capabilities so we can't throw all our all our coins into one hat, we actually need to have multiple different uh, uh, capabilities that provide us uh, an organic capability when it's necessary, as well as a beyond line of sight capability from space when able. Well, very good, and, uh, and thanks, Tom, uh, for those insights. What we're gonna do now uh, is we're gonna move on to open the session to questions uh, from our audience. Uh, and those of you out there in the TV land know the drill. Um, I'll call on you. Please unmute your mic and then state your name and affiliation before asking your question. Or you can submit questions. I've already got some up here in our, our Q&A uh, chat room. So um, let's go with the first question to uh, Chris uh, Gordon from uh, um, Air and Space Force magazine. Chris. Thank you. Uh, thanks, uh, General Deptula, and thank you, sir, for doing this. Uh, a few uh, future unmanned capabilities we know about publicly are things like CCAs, which are said to likely cost around a fourth or a third of an F-35. So that's roughly 20 million, give or take. And those aren't attributable. You have missiles that are, say, $100,000. So there's a big gap there cost-wise. Are there platforms you're exploring or perhaps already working on that are cheaper than CCAs to get at that mass issue, that resources issue, the sustainability issue. Um, and a related question that, and you touched on this a bit and perhaps you can expand on it. Are you working on things that might be more survivable in the Pacific, such as runway independent platforms where you don't have to worry as much about them being a fixed target uh, in the first place? Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Uh, great question, and I'll answer it with, first off, on our uh, CCA effort, we're looking at a uh, increment one uh, to really field, and at first, we'll, we'll start up in an experimental option unit uh, beginning next year 
that really pause into how, how do we actually go about uh, operating our CCAs. Our increment two to your last question, which will be a follow-on to that uh, first increment, uh, will explore uh, the trade space in terms of runway length required versus runway independence and what that gets us from a payload uh, and uh, range capability standpoint. In terms of uh, what's cheaper than CCAs, first off, we will continue to fight to keep the cost of CCAs and its mission equipment uh, as low as possible. Obviously, once a CCA gets up towards the cost of an F-35, you might as well buy an F-35. So we will keep that cost down uh, by, again, using that trade space uh, between what it, what it needs to do, what we need it to do, and how uh, elaborate it needs to be. So the, the other side of that coin then is what are the other things we want uncrewed aircraft to do? And whether that's coming out of uh, palletized effects, whether it's being launched off of fighters, bombers, uh, whether it's soft uh, special ops forces inserted into the battle space, uh, we will want sensors. We will want comm nodes. Uh, we will want uh, non-kinetic effectors out in the battle space. All of those could be uh, potentially supplied by autonomous platforms. Very good, thanks. We've got a couple of good ones uh, on the uh, chat room. This one's from uh, Vance Clark. Being at a higher level, but looking at both force structure and projected availability of youth to fill our needs, what concerns or specific efforts are being addressed in the realm of education? How big a concern is this with most services missing recruiting goals this year? And where does this fit into the 30 year look forward? Hey Vance, uh, Chief, uh, good to hear from you. So thanks, uh, thanks for that great question. I think uh, certainly the personnel side of this is one of our biggest concerns. Uh, how do we assess the right talent as we change the capabilities uh, that we are asking our airmen to do and to be in the, in the future. Uh, and then how do we retain them? How do we train them? How do we develop them to keep them on the team? So there's a lot of out of the container thinking, I think that's going on both at uh, AFPC within the A1 and the personnel manpower community uh, to try and figure that out. Is there, is there a way to bring tech talent into the Air Force uh, that isn't as mainstream as kind of a one size fits all, you come in, you go to BMT or you go to OTS, ROTC or the academy and you know here's your track. Uh, is there a way to move and have a more permeable membrane between the active component and the reserve component that allows airmen to move from active to reserve and back uh, in a uh, more easy fashion to again, life happens as you go on and we hate to train someone to the six or eight year point, get a maintainer to be a seven level at the 12 or 13 year point. And then because they have family medical issues, you know, we, we lose them and they have to, they have to go because uh, they, they can't support their family uh, in the way that uh, they would like. So how do we make that easier for them to continue to serve? Because our airmen want to serve. How do we make it easier for them to continue to serve and then 
move their careers along uh, in, a, in a more flexible fashion while still providing for defense of the nation. Very good. Let's go back to <clears throat> one of our live questions uh, and uh, take it over to John Harper. John. Thank you. Um, I was wondering, just with regard to the CCA drones, what kind of range uh, are you looking for those aircraft to have? Would it be comparable to a manned fighter? And uh, yeah, on a somewhat related note, um, how is that going to affect your tanking requirements if you have all these extra uh, collaborative combat aircraft flying around, you know, will, will they have similar tanking needs as a manned fighter? And will the service need to kind of ramp up its overall tanking fleet to account for these extra aircraft? Uh, John, could you please submit your resume? Cause you're asking exactly the right questions and we'd love to have you on the team as we, as we flesh out the answers. Uh, so we think that particularly in the initial tranche of uh, CCAs, their their range will be relatively the same uh, as our current fighter fleet, uh, potentially a little bit longer, which which helps with the flexibility of how we would actually employ them. And we're working through those concepts of employment right now. Future uh, tranches and increments of CCAs will probably be refueled. That adds to uh, their fueling complexity and the fuel needed in theater. Uh, but we think those are problems that are solvable uh, going forward. But we would certainly uh, love to hear your thoughts and get some of your expertise on uh, on those capabilities. Thanks. So just to clarify, for the increment one, it wouldn't have a ref aerial refueling capability. You wouldn't be able to refuel them midair. Is that correct? Uh, there is potential, uh, depending on the offer, uh, for a refueling capability in our first. CCAs. Thank you. Okay, I think you'll see an article about that. <laughs> Here's one from Andrew Wood. You briefly mentioned ABMS within the greater CJADC2 construct. My understanding is the Department of the Air Force is looking at double funding for ABMS for FY24. How does a long-term CR impact the future of ABMS? Well, Andrew, that's a great question. So yeah, there's a pretty significant ramp up. I assume that's what you mean by doubling uh, the funding. So there's a, a pretty big ramp up into FY24 uh, for ABMS as we start to develop the technical solutions and start to field some of those technical solutions as quickly as possible. Uh, the impact of a CR in that and numerous other programs uh, is huge in that once we get pegged to uh, last year's budget line, those increases cease to exist. Any any new starts uh, that we wanted to do do not exist under a continuing resolution. So it's critical, again, for us every year, it's critical for us to get a stable budget on time so that we can actually execute the plans. You know, to my earlier point, if we're in a CR for an extended period of time, and we're not able to get after the things we do, we go back and iterate on the force design and we end up shifting the whole thing to the right, which then runs into increasing threat in an operating environment that changes over time. So it makes our job that much more difficult uh, going forward. So great point. And uh, I would implore uh, Congress to get us a budget on time uh, and uh, as requested. The other thing that impacts that is the Budget Relief Act, which actually makes 
uh, continuing CR in this particular year even more onerous. So if a CR goes past uh, 30 April of this year, we start, well, actually the end of January, uh, we start to incur a 1% cut uh, from the FY23 levels. Uh, so it's not just a flat line, it's a 1% cut. And we all think, okay, 1%, I could get into my household budget and I could work about 1%. But first off, you're by the end of April, you're halfway through the fiscal year. Second, you're fencing, or you have to fence uh, a bunch of the accounts, mill pay, uh, some of the utility must pay kind of accounts, a lot of O&M is, is must pay bills. So you rapidly start to shrink uh, the amount of trade space that you have with which to find, where do I get rid of that 1% from the 23 budget? Mind you, our budget from 23 to 24 went up significantly as well. So that ends up being a significant chunk out of our ability to get after the capabilities and the airmen that we need in the future. Yeah, I, unfortunately, I'm afraid that many of our Congress people don't understand that. Uh, and so we're going to do our best at Mitchell to try to explain the impact of that in, a, in a way that we can get out there because uh, it, it's not a pretty picture, particularly given all of the threats that, uh, uh, that we're facing and that you mentioned. Um, here's one from uh, Mike Dom, uh, more on base defense. Beyond airborne elements that might contribute to base defense as part of integrated air and missile defense, does the Air Force envision having organic ground-based air defenses like short-range missile or gun systems? To be blunt, we should, should, we should absolutely trust our Army or Navy brethren to have our backs, but shouldn't the Air Force be responsible for its own last line of base defense? So I'll start out. To Mike, with with saying that you know the the past concept of base defense and air base air defense have have blurred significantly over recent years, right? So what used to be, a, hey, we've got we the Air Force have kind of inside the wire defense uh, requirements, and that's what we're responsible for, and the Army owns everything outside of the wire. That's blurred a little bit. We're having those conversations. First and foremost, we need the capabilities at a cost that's acceptable and affordable uh, to get after the threats that are incoming, and whether that's subsonic cruise missiles, hypersonic uh, ballistic missiles, or shorter range uh, missiles, uh, some superson supersonic, uh, we need to work with the Army to make sure that's really what uh, the integrated air missile defense mix study uh, that is ongoing is is talking about is what is that best mix to get after all the inbound threats, regardless of who's actually shooting them, uh, whether they will be uh, on base and operated by airmen uh, that that starts to add its own problems of, OK, so you're talking a career field that doesn't currently exist in the Air Force, schoolhouses that currently don't exist in the Air Force, but all do exist in in the Army. Uh, so we are ongoing with those conversations. That study is ongoing. And I think uh, at the end, there is a commitment from all the services and OSD and the Joint Staff that, that we will defend our forces as they're deployed, whether that's a sea on land uh, and whether you're 
Army, Navy, Marine, or Air Force. Very good. Here's a follow-up from Mike. Um, camouflage, concealment, and deception will ultimately need to be an integral part of base defense. To what extent do you see uh, camouflage, concealment, and deception as a lower-cost alternative to the potentially high costs and technical challenges of kinetic integrated air missile defense? My great question, and thanks uh, for bringing that up, because I think when we talk about base defense, it's not just shooting things down, right? So it's ACE is part of base defense. As we move both external to the base and internal to the base, we'll move things around. So CCND, camouflage, conceal, and deception are critical aspects of our ability to mass the force to complicate the enemy's targeting proposition so that we can protect the force so that we can launch the sorties we need to do. So great question. Uh, CCND is, is a critical part of our uh, future base defense. Here's one from Jim Burt, um, pretty straightforward. How do you balance conventional and nuclear forces in light of our nuclear modernization needs? Thank you. Yeah, so great question, right? So if you go back to the national defense strategy, uh, what are our priorities? Homeland defense, so we need to balance that. Strategic deterrence, so we need to balance that. And the ability to project power. So that's really the, the three things that we are balancing realizing some of those capabilities and capacity that we're developing cross all three of those lines. So fighters may be used in homeland defense. It may be part of strategic deterrence. Uh, they may be part of uh, projecting forces. The tankers go across all those. Our ability to get uh, air moving target indication, uh, targeting uh, and command and control goes across all three of those uh, spaces. So our ability to balance across the strategic deterrent portfolio with the conventional portfolio is uh, one of the critical aspects that we're actually uh, discussing and, and emphasizing in the force design. Uh, you know, the funding required uh, to recapitalize our strategic deterrent is significant. Uh, that by and large, from a capability and capacity standpoint, is funded. Uh, NC3, uh, the nuclear command control and communications piece of that is a must have and also needs to be funded. So we will continue to emphasize, as the national defense strategy does, the our ability to provide a strategic deterrent for the nation. Here's one from uh, Mark Okian. Uh, fighting in the South China Sea to defend Taiwan will be a massive challenge, and the elephant in the room is how we sustain the fight once it begins. ACE has become the coat hanger that the U.S. Air Force intends to hang it, uh, hang its logistics success on, but there's major trepidation that it will be extremely difficult to operationalize. Saying that we need to get after ACE sounds reassuring, but what does that really mean in concrete terms when it comes to resourcing these requirements? So let's talk first about how we're actually getting after that and what it comes down to is practicing. So if you go back to you know when we were uh, slightly younger in, in Desert Storm, we're actually able to deploy squadrons and wings and support them at main oper operating bases. Uh, we have, in the last 30 years, have frankly fallen out of practice of the ability to deploy and sustain large units. And that is something that we want to get after. So what is the, 
uh, unit of action that the Air Force needs uh, in the future. And I submit it is not a six ship or eight ship package to a single base. It is a an entire squadron. It is potentially entire wings that go into a hub and then start moving out to the spokes. Uh, that requires practice. Uh, what also requires practice is the ability to sustain and support that, that force, both at the hubs and at the spokes, as well as the ability to command and control that force, both at the hubs and at the spokes. So, uh, you know, my, my first glib answer is we got to practice this. And we're getting after that. Mobility Guardian was a great example, along with the ACE uh, exercises that uh, PACAP is running uh, last year, this year, and into, into next year. So we will continue to do those exercises. We will continue to expand those exercises. And then we will work on the capabilities that we need uh, to better support the deployed force. Here's a related question from Andrew Rowan. Sir, you mentioned training airmen for the future fight with the recently updated Air Force doctrine on mission command. What, air, what efforts is Air Force future making? And you know, it, it's not in your job, job, but it's still a good question. <laughs> what efforts is Air Force futures making to train commanders and airmen to execute mission command, specifically training commanders to write good intent and airmen to take disciplined initiative while accepting prudent risk. How do you see the acceptable level of risk changing in a future fight that will be more contested than ever? So I don't know that acceptable level of risk actually changes in the future fight. It's being able to communicate that ALR to the mission commander and enabling him uh, with the capabilities and the capacity and the ability to aggregate his forces uh, so that he can uh, execute to the acceptable level of risk. Uh, but you have hit on uh, one of the key things that, that we need to get uh, into, and, and that is, are we training our wing commanders on down to execute ACE and mission command? So if you think back to the past and under a base attack, what does the wing commander do? Gets everybody undercover and flushes the fleet. If we look to the future, that can't be our only answer. So we have to practice the ability to actually launch under attack, to launch with effect under attack and not just flush the forces. We have to be able to do integrated combat turns and get our planes on the ground, refueled, rearmed, and back airborne where they need to be. So we find, as we look at the future, that the safest place, frankly, to be uh, for our platforms is airborne. And whether you're a mobility aircraft, whether you're a tanker, fighter, or bomber, uh, airborne and doing the mission is potentially the safest place uh, for you to be. We lose more aircraft uh, in our analysis on the ground than we do airborne. Great, here's one a little bit different. Angle from Kevin Stubbs, the impact of directed energy weapons technology will fundamentally change how we build, operate, and employ air and space power. What are we doing to address this fundamental change in how air power is generated and employed? Which presumes that, he, that the, the, the part of that is we're, how far along are we with developing directed energy weapons? 
Yeah, so uh, much like a lot of other things, we're five years away from uh, directed energy weapons, and we have been five years away for the last, what, Dave, 20 years? 20 years, yeah. So, uh, but it is actually something that our disruptive tech folks in Air Force Futures uh, takes a hard look at. So there's a defensive capability piece of this. Uh, there's an offensive capability piece of, uh, uh, of uh, DEW that, that we will continue to look at. And as that technology matures, we'll fold it into our capability development plans. Okay, here's another one on CCAs from uh, Colin Gofert. You mentioned an experimental collaborative combat aircraft squadron standing up next year. What thought has been put forward? Would a flying unit with large unmanned aircraft look like organizationally? Certainly the concept of airmanship is important in a flying unit, but to what extent in a squadron of CCAs moving through a theater under an ACE construct? So uh, great question. And again, submit your resume. We'd love to have you on the CCA team as we flesh that out. And that frankly is exactly what the OT and the experimental ops unit uh, are going to try and get after is what does, what does the fighter squadron of the future look like? Is it a 24 PAA squadron with, you know, 12 CCA or 48 CCA attached to them as part of the squadron? Are they separate? What is the kind of day-to-day -day battle rhythm of those CCAs? Do we forward deploy and, re and set the theater with CCAs already in theater, keep a small number back for test and training, uh, and then do a predominance of our actual crude, uncrewed training in the virtual arena. Uh, all of those are issues to be worked out as we see one, what kind of uh, CCAs we actually get out of this increment one, two, uh, let, the OT and the experimental ops unit folks develop those tactics, techniques, and procedures for how we want to employ, and then what's the best way to organize, train, and equip those squadrons uh, most efficiently, most effectively. And the questioner, Colin, is a member of uh, ACSE class at 24, so Colin, I'm getting on an airplane after this and coming down to brief you guys tomorrow, so I look forward to continuing that conversation with you. Perfect. Um, here's an interesting one from uh, Tom Coopersmith. Sir, good to see you, hope you're doing well. I'm working CJADC2 with CDAO. How do you think the Air Force efforts regarding ABMS are doing with respect to integrating uh, with uh, the joint combined effort overall of CJADC2? Uh, Tom, great to hear from you in, uh, great. Is that? An adequate answer. So there is, uh, I think that, I think the hardest part currently about CJADC2 and integrating efforts is just that, integrating all those efforts. Everyone's energized uh, to get after uh, command and control in the future. And whether it's, you know, our advanced battle management system, Army's project convergence, the Navy's project overmatch, all of those pieces are coming together. I'll mention uh, our Future Games 23, which closed out uh, in late uh, February uh, with the culminating event. And while that is an Air Force war game, uh, the Army participated, the Marines participated, the Navy participated. We had 
an REF cell and an Australian cell uh, in that exercise. We participate uh, deeply in the Army's project convergence and we participate with the Navy in, in overmatch. We are all, i.e. all the services are all working with uh, the joint staff on CJADC2 and the CDAO on the, on the data architecture piece of that. So there is a lot of uh, cross-communication and collaboration uh, that are going on in that front. So I'm very heartened to see that. Uh, there is a lot of work still to be done. So we need your smarts, Tom, to, to get after it. So I appreciate what you're doing. Here's an interesting one from uh, Dustin Barber. How can a horizontally integrated Air Force focused on just-in-time delivery of resources transition to vertically integrated ATFs with all the resources it needs to conduct ops with mission type order? Uh, so that is the transition plan, right? So in a nutshell, uh, how can we do that? And that's something we actually have to figure out. Uh, and it, it starts with uh, pre-positioning and setting the theaters for success and how much can we put forward? How do we sustain uh, pre-positioned materials forward? What do we have to hold back? What do we move into theater? How do we posture the theater both in competition and then as we transition into, into conflict? So those are all uh, great questions that we're currently working through uh, as this carousel continues to spin. I know that's fair and a good answer. Here's one from uh, Brian uh, Everstein over at Aviation Week. We've talked a lot on the timeline and capabilities of CCAs, but I was hoping you could also talk about how the Air Force sees them impacting operational planning and tactics. How differently, for example, would an NGAD and three to four uh, CCAs get after the traditional role of air superiority when we look at a near peer fight compared to the legacy approach? And then how will joint partners be involved in uh, operational plan development? Hey, thanks, Brian. That's a great question and uh, one we're, we're working. And uh, I would, uh, in this environment, uh, probably I'll give you a, an historical advantage or uh, example rather. So when we brought the F-22 in, uh, we initially flew it like an F-15C. And we quickly found out that, wow, this plane could do a lot more than the F-15C could do. So let's employ it differently. So we have some ideas on how we would employ uh, CCAs, both uh, initially with the F-22, ultimately with the NGAD, potentially with other fighters as we integrate them. Uh, the real question is, what does that look like? We've done some uh, campaign and uh, engagement analysis that starts to lead us down a path, but we really want to test it out. And that's what uh, the experimental ops unit is going to do. That's what OT will do for CCAs as we start to integrate them with the fighter force. Uh, here's one from uh, Charles Dunn. You mentioned risk to immediate operations and risk to future operations regarding strategy and future force structure design. Could you please talk a bit about the risk that the service and other combined joint forces are buying with pursuing concepts like CCA that have never been combat tested, yet the Air Force plans to have a thousand by 2030 when the current state of our combat fleet is 
so old and small. Um, how do we balance short-term capacity risk with long-term risk of a concept solution? So I guess uh, I'll push back a little in that I think every, every capability that we develop that's new and different is a concept at one point. And the trick is how do we prudently, efficiently develop something from concept to get the right tech readiness level so that we can actually bring it to fruition and an initial operating capability into a full operating capability. Uh, that's something that we do uh, with our, our resources in A8 and FM and with the acquisition uh, professionals in AFMC and the program offices. So I am supremely confident that the technical solution for integrating collaborative combat aircraft uh, with our fighter force is is not technically a tough problem. There is uh, an operational uh, test and uh, training uh, piece that we will work through that is no different than any other new capability that we bring in. So we may organize differently for this and we'll work our way through that to get to the most efficient, most effective organization. Uh, but the, the technology required, particularly early on in CCAs, and which is really why we focus down to this air-to-air -air mission, uh, it, this is not a sea change in technology. So the, uh, the autonomy required exists today. There's a simple number of, of commands uh, that the crewed aircraft will give to its uh, CCAs that, frankly, given a data link and a, a tablet is... Uh, already being worked on. Uh, so uh, I think uh, the problem is uh, relatively easily surmountable. As we get to more and more complex uh, uh, concepts of employment, then it maybe becomes a little more difficult, but we'll be able to work through those, I'm confident. Okay, here's another one from Mike Dom. Uh, I know he's already asked a couple before, but this is a really good one. Modern <laughs> warfare, especially combat with a near-peer competitor like China, is increasingly focused on information advantage and capabilities to dominate the battle space information environment. Modeling in SIM to date seems to have focused primarily on salvo size, exchange rates, and attrition to determine outcomes. Um, how does the Air Force Futures envision simulating and modeling the battle space information environment as a means to determine who will be able to see what in order to make decisions in complex battle spaces? Yeah, great question, because that's really the crux of the future fight, isn't it? And what our ABMS uh, folks, both on the acquisition and C3BM and Brigadier General Luke Cropsey have done with our capability development team in the Advanced Battle Management System, CDT, have done a great job of doing some uh, model-based systems engineering on, on what that space looks like and what are the actual capabilities that we need ABMS to do. And now they're getting after uh, actually developing and deploying those capabilities to the force so that ultimately when you get from, again, here we are today to where uh, ABMS is full up, uh, you have those capabilities that's able to move that data around. Critical to that capability, as we talked earlier about how do we integrate with the Space Force, is that data transport layer that the Space Force is going to provide in the future is going to be critical to this fight. We will also need the resilience 
if we have gaps in that data transport layer to be able to daisy chain through air breathers, surface ships to continue that flow of data in any number of environments from fully organic to uh, fully inorganic in terms of long-term or long-range kill chains to a hybrid in between them. Well, thanks very much, Tom. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of this uh, Aerospace Nation, and I'd like to thank you for taking the time for being here. Um, we wish you all the best uh, thanks, in your continued uh, uh, tenure. Uh, and uh, to you and all our audience out there from Mitchell Institute, have a great aerospace power kind of day. Thank you.